Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the last question. Um, if you caught last week's episode, uh, I, I tried to tease this one well. Uh, I'm talking this week with a good friend of both my wife's and mine. Maggie and I have, have known Allie for 20 plus years, since 2004 or thereabouts. Um, Dr. Alexandria Butler. Do you use Alexandria much anymore, speaking of which? No, hardly ever. Just, okay. just in uh, applications. Just in applications. Okay. Uh, well, Dr. Allie Butler is a pharmacist in the Seattle, Washington area. She's an Air Force veteran, a former meteorologist, uh, now mother of three and lives a pretty full life, we'll say. I'm going to let her explain mostly what that means. We were actually talking a whole lot about it before I hit record. And then I realized halfway through, really, I should be recording this because this is a valuable conversation. So uh, that's all I'll say. Hey, Allie. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. It's uh, 5.30, 5.50, where you are, right, on the West Coast? Yes, it it's is. It's still dark. <laughs> and your yeah. son has already come in and said hi. He has. He has already presenced us with um, his wonderful self. So. Okay, so he may get an appearance. Um. He well, he in, is, right? he's with Dab now, so hopefully, we'll see. He may come back in. We don't know. So when you, so when that happens, cause that happens to us, maybe once or twice a week, the Xander, especially the older one will wake up way before we want him to. And Mag's trying to start work early and I'm making breakfast from doing something downstairs and we'll suggest to him to go do something or to go find the other parent that never works. Well, I'm usually the only parent. So suggesting to go find the other parent would also not work for me. Um, yeah. Uh, luckily my kids for the most part sleep pretty well. Like considering I have three very young children, I am very blessed. Like they go to bed, like Colin, my oldest will go to bed. Probably the latest would be like nine 30 or 10. And he'll usually sleep until six or seven. Some days I can get him to like actually stay in his room earlier, like eight 30. So, I mean, and the twins, they're, you know, they go to bed at seven and I don't go back into their room until 6.30 the next. So like, I'm, yeah, it's definitely not the norm, but I think that God knew that I needed children that sleep well to be yeah. able to handle the load that I currently have. So, yeah. So Colin just turned four. He did. How old are the twins now? They will be two it, at the end of the month. Holy crap. Okay. Yeah. So what's, so what's life like now with a four, a freshly minted four-year-old and two, almost two-year-olds? Um, I mean, it's chaotic, but it's a lot of fun. Like I'm sure you've seen a little glimpse of it now that you have a, a second kid, just like that interaction and the excitement and it just kind of changes the whole dynamic. And it, I mean, it just gets better, uh, especially as they start to develop their personalities and they really start interacting with each other. Like right now for you, Xander's probably paying more attention to baby than baby is paying attention to Xander, oh, but yeah. that, will, that will flip. And it's so cool to watch. Um, but it's also very tiring. <laughs> so yeah, yeah it's, a, it's like, um, I don't really know how to explain it. I mean, if parents know, I probably don't have to explain it that we're all in the same boat. So it's like the most joyful and exhausting thing you do. Yeah. So I've, I've caught myself like most parents we know, I think talk about like, this is the greatest thing you could ever do. And being a parent's the coolest thing ever. 
and Mag and I had wanted to be parents for a long time. You know that story. Um, and so I still, I still think that, but I, like, it comes up at weird moments. Like when, like Xander sometimes will really want Isaac to play or Isaac now has started to follow Xander. Like Xander loves to help Mag change Isaac's diaper. And it's to the point where, cause Isaac, he, we, he has some skin trouble, like dry skin issues and stuff. So right now we have four different substances we have to put on his body like twice a day. So Xander plays like sous chef or nurse or whatever you want to call it right next to her at the changing table. And she'll call up for like a tube of whatever. And he hands her the right one and he's doing it. But now the baby's looking at him and watching him and like tries to play with his hair and tries to play with him. So I don't know. It's weird stuff like that, that I didn't expect really to appreciate as much as I do. Yeah, it, it really, it really is. It's been, you definitely get caught off guard often as a parent. Yeah. In good, in good ways. What, what do you mean? Caught off? What else do you get caught off guard about? I don't with know. Like, just things that you don't anticipate. And maybe it's because like, you're so used to how your child is in that, that phase of life that you're not ready for them to like move on and progress and learn something new. And yeah, when yeah. those things happen, it kind of takes you off guard. Like you're like, wait, are we there already? When did, when did we move into this phase? Like last week, it was completely different. It's just all changing so quickly and evolving. And yeah, I just feel like I'm in like constant awe. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That part's true. Cause I, I caught my, I said, now it's been close to six months, but Xander was still was walking, but still kind of stumbly. And he did, I can't even remember what he did. I think he was going up and down the stairs. So now he will hold on to the banister and he'll just take steps up like a, and what I used to say was like a regular human or something or a regular person. And Mag's like, he is a, he is a person. He's just short, <laughs> but like you don't think of, especially when you're seeing the baby just sit there totally incapable really of doing anything at the start. And then you see them going up and down stairs. Now he tries to like cut cheese off the block when we're making dinner and he's doing all sorts of stuff at the counter. And like he sits, he sits on the counter watching us while we're prepping dinner and stuff. And he likes to do that now. Um, so yeah, I don't know. You're right. There's definitely, there's definitely a lot that happens that takes you off guard that you're not expecting to see, especially as fast as it happens. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's really an amazing thing to watch. I feel, I feel like if I could learn even a 20th speed of what they do, I, yeah, I know so much further ahead. I know. Um, okay. So there's a whole lot we talked about talking about, but I think to paint the picture a little bit more completely, tell us a little bit about, so tell us about the rest of your family. So you, so I think you mentioned Seth briefly, but then you said you spend a lot of time as the only parent. So explain yeah, that. Yeah, I should probably explain that. So he doesn't seem like he's not present. Um, well, yeah. So, yeah. So, I mean, we were, we both were Air Force, you know, both of us um, from our college days, but Seth um, C-17, he flew C-17s when he was active duty. He separated, oh, four years ago, and he still flies as a reservist with a unit in Pittsburgh, but primary job is pilot with Southwest, um, which, you know, a lot of people are probably somewhat familiar with that role, but it has become a little bit more complicated with COVID. 
just because a lot of the flight options have decreased and he's what they consider a commuter. So we live in the Seattle area, but Seattle is not a hub for Southwest. So he flies out of Oakland, that is his hub, which means he has to commute in. Um, and before it was a little bit easier because he, let's say he had a flight out at three that he had to um, be flying. He could maybe leave Seattle at 12 and make it to Oakland in no, at like no, no problem getting there on time. But now because, you know, airlines aren't doing as well, they've decreased a lot of the flight options. Sometimes he has to leave the day prior to make a flight like that. And then the reverse on the back end when he's coming back, there might not be any flights left that late in the day for him to get home. So sometimes it can add half a day to a day onto each end of the trip and then combine that with the reserve weekend because he does typically one weekend a year um, and then two weeks or one week in a month, two weeks a year, and then some, you know, a little bit more on top of that. Like in June, he's going to be on orders for all of June over in Pittsburgh. So for flight hours, uh, yeah, the aviators I, have to get more time, right? Just to keep, yeah, they do. And I mean, it's a combination of things, obviously, like as much as a traditional reservist is supposed to play like at that traditional role, one week in a month, two weeks a year, when it actually comes into fruition that's not necessarily what it looks like most are probably putting in a little more time than that just because of the needs of the unit and to really stay current current and you know be good at your job and have things align properly like he can go out one week in a month but that doesn't mean he's going to fly so the amount of flying that he does in comparison to the amount of time that he's there is you know, it can be variable because you've got to take into consideration like weather. He went out for an entire week to get check rides done and he couldn't get them done because the weather canceled every day. So he was out there for a week and didn't get anything accomplished. Well, then that means you have to go and repeat that week. So it's just things like that that kind of come up and you can't really control them or predict them. And it results in just a lot more time away. So what does he do? So on a weekend or a week, that, that week of check rides that just totally got burned because we get our fair share of thunderstorms and snow in the wintertime, all that stuff. What does he do? Because he's he not coming back. Well, he flight plans every day. He basically, like you'll flight plan for and prep for your flight the next day. And then when it cancels, you've got to start all over again. So he basically repeats that process every day with the hopes that, you know, it's going to work. And then it sometimes does not. So, Yeah. So is this, so is that dynamic, is that what you guys expected? Is that what he expected walking into the reserve role, you know, I guess? I think, you know, like there are a lot of personal things with how everything kind of laid itself out for us. When Seth was separating from the Air Force, we decided like Pittsburgh was probably a good option. My mom was there. I still have some other family there. The idea that I could go back with him on weekends here and there, you know, we were just pregnant with our first child. It was feasible. It like I could do like that. with good idea. Kid. Yeah. Um, but things have changed since and it's not feasible for me to just travel back on a weekend with him. 
with three kids because I'd be doing that by myself. And like, I, I'm sure people do it, but that is not me. I am not that person. I could not do that. You mean to just jump on an airplane every month with three kids and with three kids make yeah. it happen. Like, yeah, I don't know. Maybe anybody. if they're older, but no, yeah. no, no. Um, for but my sanity, that's not anything. Yeah. So, um, you know, there we've talked about different things like potentially him moving to the unit here but there have yeah. there, there has to be an opening you can't just like hop on over to another unit like that's not really how it works and because of covid there's nothing open anywhere so yeah they're, um, meaning they're not hiring yeah they're not hiring in any of the units oh. locally that's interesting because we have we have students applying to reserve units and we've been told they've been told that there are reserve units hiring, like there's slots open and it's just most of the interviews are virtual because of COVID, but that's all they've been told. And they're I aviators. Possible. Um, but there aren't at JBLM or at least not the units that he's been in contact with. I think there's like a handful. It's not just one unit. I think they have like three or four reserve units here. Uh, base, Lewis McCord you're talking about, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And they're C-17 units? McCord. Yeah, McCord. McCord. Yeah, yep. Um, yeah, that's probably the Air Force, but you know, for the rest of our non-Air Force peeps. Yeah, JBLM. well, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Okay. Um, so I don't know. Well, it's, it's in the works, um, but again, like, he has to probably be home to go over and like, cause you can send an email or make a phone call, but it's not the same as going in person. Right. So to visit the unit, you mean? Yeah. 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 Like well, whenever it is, he gets more than three days in a row at home in Seattle, he could go over to McCord and say hello, probably. Right. Right. So yeah, yeah okay. it's, um, it's in the works, but it's just going to take a little time. Yeah. Okay. Um, so you mentioned your, you were both air force, mm -hmm. uh, Seth flew C-17s and retired or not retired, but uh, transition to the reserve at about the 10 year mark. Is that right? Um, probably. I don't know. I'd have to do the math in my head and it's too early for math. Okay. But yes, yeah. We'll go with 10. Sure. At least for, wait till the sun comes up. Eight. Yeah. So what about, so what about you? What, what got you into the air force? Cause you started out active duty in a role, uh, 100% not related to pharmacy, arguably. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, a lot of people ask me this question and I can't say there's like one specific thing that kind of pointed me in that direction. My family was very patriotic. My brother, my older brother went to the Air Force Academy and I think that's probably what piqued my interest in that lifestyle. I had actually entertained the thought of going to the Academy. Like my mom was setting me up to meet with the big wigs to get the bids and different things like that. Yeah. And the then I kind, of decided, yeah, I kind of decided like I sort of wanted a normal college experience Yeah. and I'm sure all the academy people are just like, you know, whatever. But um, I mean, that's the truth. Uh, so, but I can't really tell you like, as far as going into the air force, what it was that triggered me to do that. I think my personality just aligns with a service oriented lifestyle, um, which is what transitioned me into like the healthcare sector after I left. But yeah, I can't say there's like one major thing that I was like, I don't, I wasn't always gun ho on going into the military. It just kind of pieces started falling in place and it just made sense and kind of aligned with my values. And um, yeah, the rest is history. Okay. Well, yeah, but there's some more interesting history. So what, so why Ohio state then? Cause you're from Pittsburgh. Um, and surrounded by famous universities. 
Yeah. So I think probably my, I'm not going to go and like try to make up answers that everyone would want to hear. I really just needed to get away from like, not, and not that my family life was bad or that my parents, yeah. oh, were bad. Yeah. I just wanted to get away. Like I wanted to be independent. And I literally said, I have to be at least three hours away in order for my parents to not be able to make like surprise visits. So it had to be planned. I want, I didn't want them to just be able to pop in. And I think that was because I was naive and like my parents never would have done that. Like when I was 18 and leaving, they were probably excited to have a little bit of peace back in their lives. And like, you know, not have, cause like now that I have kids, I see like, it's a lot of work probably when, you know, it's bittersweet, you're ready, but you're not ready. Yeah. So I'm sure my parents were never going to make surprise visits, but I was 18 and that was like the mindset. Um, well, yeah, going to pit 15 minutes away or whatever, that just wasn't yeah, an option. No, I just didn't want to do that. Um, I wanted to, you know, spread my wings and go. So why, why Ohio State, though, versus – so we're right at about three hours, so that's yeah. the bill, but why us versus – I think – Smaller um, school, private school? Well, I mean, I applied to a lot of different places. Um, some – I wanted to apply to, I think some, I was more encouraged by my mom. Um, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, when I visited, I liked the campus. I liked the feel, the culture, but honestly, it was probably just like the upper being guiding me there because there were bigger things waiting for me there. There was a reason why I was supposed to go there. And yeah. So I would say that was divine intervention. Okay. That's totally fair. So then you showed up and you majored in meteorology. Yeah, that honestly was so I could get a scholarship. Okay, and I and that's definitely, <laughs> I won't say that's a common answer, but that's definitely an answer I hear a lot. So that's totally yeah. Weird. I mean, some was people it either that or engineering? So no, I I mean it was. I thought that I would be interested in it, um, and it was. There were a lot of classes that I enjoyed, um, but looking back on it, that was totally the wrong major to pick and didn't align at all with my personality, but that's partially because what you study and what you do are two very different things. You study a lot of like, um, like you, you derive equations to come up with models and different things to help you predict the weather. Um, but when you actually practice, you use those models to put together a forecast that is most often not very accurate. Um, and there's a lot of, uh, gray and I'm much, I'm not into that. I like, I'm one of those weirdos that likes to work through a math problem because I get a correct answer at the end. That's satisfying to me. I don't like working on something for a very long time and having it be completely wrong. So I learned that and having everyone know that it's completely wrong. I don't care what people think that part it's, this is just like a personal thing. Like, yeah, that's just, yeah. So, and you know, it's very precise in the military. It's not like the weather where you're predicting whether or not it's going to rain for the baseball game. Like it's very specific. You have to talk about, like what time it's going to rain, how much it's going to rain at that time, what the winds are going to be at multiple levels throughout the atmosphere. And, no. you know, when, I don't know, there's just, it's very precise. And a lot of people don't realize the 
um, the depth that you have to go into with military weather in comparison to like a civilian forecast. It's just totally different. And I think that that's probably also why I was like, so um, focused on the fact that it was often wrong because I was not very good at it. Um, I supervised a ton of very intelligent people that could find these little micro whatever in the the data and they could predict like a burst at a certain spot and i'd be like what are you looking at i'm not seeing this and then they'd be right and it like, would work and it would happen it would happen yeah and so i didn't have that i didn't have that innate ability i definitely didn't have the eye for it um and i just like my brain didn't think that way whatever way their brain was thinking that they could study this data and interpret it properly I just wasn't getting it. Um, and I, you know, it could have been lack of experience because obviously when you go in as an officer, you're very inexperienced. Yeah. And a lot of the people that were, you know, teaching me were, they've, they've been in meteorology or weather for 10, 15, you know, some of the civilians 20 plus years, you know, and I was here out of college having like one quarter's worth of forecasting it was a contest within a class that was the only forecasting I had done we didn't you don't study that in college you do not study how to forecast not really so what do what would most of your classmates be going on to go do because I think meteorologists, but I don't know how they learned how to forecast I don't know but Maybe isn't every meteorologist in some sense forecasting at some point um, or what's well, unless you go into academia so I guess I should circle back to that because most of the people that I went to school with aren't actually doing meteorology. Most of my friends uh, okay. are not. Um, they, you know, they went back to school to be a teacher or, you know, something completely different. There aren't a ton of jobs in meteorology unless you want to go, unless you want to move to like, a, you know, NOAA or NWS. Yeah. Weather, a big, yeah. so basically the government, unless you're willing to work for the government or do broadcasting yeah i mean i know two people that are broadcasting but i was in a okay. class of 40 probably so two out of 40 is not a whole lot no but that's actually less people than i expected so you're so in terms of your like your group your graduating year group was only about 40 in the undergrad maybe. i don't know it was with the classes oh, not not that big. they weren't that big i mean it might have been more um i'm just trying to think it could have been 50, but it wasn't, it wasn't a ton. Like I knew just about everyone in my class. Well, that's what, that's cool. I definitely can't boast that our, our engineers. Well, to some extent, I think our engineers can. Once I moved into arts and sciences into political science, there was just no way. Although I think most of that's my fault, right? Cause that was, that was major number 17 and I was a junior. And by that point yeah. I was just desperate to get myself out of college. <laughs> I was thinking about like you had put something on one of your posts recently about how you had 17 different majors or however many and I was like I completely forgot about that <laughs> like you really burned through the list yeah well yeah you were you were living part of that well meteorology was one of them I took the the intro geography course and I think within two weeks realized nope this is definitely not where, I, <laughs> where I'm supposed to be yeah I don't know what the hell's going on um I had to get a tutor for that class, just so you know, class number one. For the intro class or for the first? 
it was like a 500 level class if I remember right like the first whatever it was it was hard I remember being like I am in this major and I'm struggling with this first core class yeah um I had to get a tutor (laughs) that should have that should have like maybe been a slight indication that it was probably not going to be a great fit but yeah maybe but now would you have ended up I mean, so those NCOs and civilians, the folks that were really good at looking at the data, would you just have gotten there with time if you had given it longer than the four years you did? Or no, I don't think so. I would have because I didn't enjoy it. Okay. I feel like to be, I'm, well, I think most people really excel at things that they enjoy. Now, it is possible to excel at things that you don't, but I think it's a lot less common. So you're a find your passion type of person? Oh, yeah. Most definitely. And that's speaking from experience. Okay, so let's so let's get into that. Because I remember we were in Charleston. I don't remember when this was 2012, 2013, maybe Mag and I had come to Charleston to see family. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. When we met at the mall. Um, And you were talking about you were in pharmacy school, I think you were in the middle of the farm D program in South Carolina, and you had separated from the Air Force. Mm -hmm. And I don't think we had that much time to talk. I think we were going on to something else. And you, you probably had 7,000 other things that you were trying to think about once you were leaving that place. So we didn't get a lot of time. But I think we asked you a little bit there. And I would definitely wanted to ask you here, what, what led you to pharmacy? And especially now that you've been talking a little bit, you say that you've always been service oriented meteorology you never really enjoyed it didn't line up with who you are so why pharmacy versus any other service oriented field like how did you make that leap because I, I remember at the time and even now to this day I'm like that's a that's a leap and you're clearly doing well with it but it's just hard to yeah I think I mean I could have probably stayed in the air force as a weather officer if like Seth and I could have aligned in order to be um, together in the same place, I probably could have stayed in, but that's because the majority of what you do is you get further up. You're not in the nitty gritty, you're supervising. Right. So not partially what I enjoy that that's probably the part of being in the air force that I enjoyed the most. was like the people aspect. But when I knew I was going to separate, I knew I had to be in something um, that was service oriented, something where, cause like, I really do have a servant's heart. I met with someone about a year ago and they, um, it was like a coach of sorts that I, you know, this was before I really knew what LinkedIn was and, you know, everyone tries to like solicit their services. Um, but this was actually, this was a very, um, this person is actually pretty reputable, but I was talking with her and she said, you know, what is, you know, what is it that you want to do? And I was like, well, I want to help people. And she's like, no, really everyone says that everyone says that that what do you really want to do and I was like uh no really I want to help people like that is just my personality that's when I feel like I'm making the impact and doing what I was called to do when I'm helping people so like when I say that I genuinely mean it and so I think that when I was trying to decide what I wanted to do long-term, I knew it had to be in that realm of helping people. And healthcare, I mean, that's that's a fairly good fit for that calling. Um, 
so pharmacy specifically, it was probably because I didn't think I could handle the like blood and guts of going most other routes. Like nursing is very hands-on. Um, medical school is, yeah, like I could never have done some of the things that they're required to do just to get to the point where they can specialize. Like, I don't know that I could have done those things. Um, like I'm a what? Bit too queasy. What kind of things? Um, you know, like dealing with a cadaver or, um, I think our nursing students stick people with needles, like second semester, it doesn't take long at all. And they're practicing all sorts of stuff on people. Yeah. And I mean, I think that there are certain things that I thought I couldn't do. And I now looking back, I probably could have, because like, obviously I have to inject people with immunizations all day, every day, um, which was not initially something that pharmacists did traditionally that became more popular in you know probably the last 10 years or so but yeah so I don't know I just it it kind of fell into place I knew it would be flexible because at that point Seth was still active duty and I figured we would probably be moving a lot which you know in the course of pharmacy school um, and his service, you know, we started out in South Carolina, then we moved to Mississippi, and then we moved here. So it wasn't, it, it was probably a wise move for flexibility. Um, and then I don't know, it just, it fell into place and it was the right choice, you know. Um, I think that there are a lot of different things that you can do in healthcare, whichever profession you're in, there's a lot of specialization. So and you kind of already have some exposure to what I'm digging into now, um, but you can do a lot of different things. So if you have a servant's heart and you get into healthcare, there are a lot of different ways to go. It's not just like a one size fits all or one mold. So I think, I mean, so you said, so you said servant's heart several times, but I know yeah. I had a similar response. Like everybody says, especially coming out of the military, I think everybody says, or most people say, I want to help people. I want to lead. I want to, I don't know. I want to make people better. Like there's, there's kind of these generic responses that were, that seem to make sense in whatever context we're doing in the military. And then you get out and you say that. And the truth is, yeah, a lot of us say that. And then we get stuck. Like that was me. Like I, I, I want to help people. And I feel as though as much as I doubt my ability to lead internally, and then despite what people tell me, I, I still feel like when I say, well, I just, I want to help other people lead better. That's still, well, what the hell does that mean? Like people lead and supervise in all sorts of contexts. So what, so I guess, what is it about pharmacy versus any other service field? Like, could you see yourself doing something else or did you really fall into the niche, the specialization um, it really fits you. Myself doing something else. Um, I've never really thought about it since I dove into pharmacy. Like, n- could yes, of course, I could probably be doing something else, but I can also mold what I'm doing now to fit exactly what I want. That's the that's the beauty of having the right kind of personality, right? what you're doing right now, you're kind of venturing into the unknown, but you can mold what you're Making doing. Making a lot of stuff up. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, but you can mold it because it's, and that's kind of like, you know, when you're talking about like the entrepreneurial path, 
you can mold it into what you want it to be, um, which is a, very appealing because some of the things that you might not like about working for a corporation, for example, you don't necessarily have to deal with. Is it an easy path? No, it's definitely not. No, no. Um, but you can basically take this same type of path with any position that you're in. So whether you're a pharmacist or you are a financial advisor or you do consulting work for, I don't know, law. You, I mean, you can use this same path to mold and make whatever you want to do, want to make, um, to serve in the way that you want to serve. So how have you, how have you done that? How do you do that now? Yeah. I mean, I, so it's, it's kind of like multifold. I obviously pharmacy. So I think most people are familiar with pharmacy from like the retail standpoint. So CBS, so, the Walgreens. Yes. Walgreens. Yeah. Right. Aid, that kind of thing. So that was like my major experience, um, up until about the, probably the last year or so, but within that, um, within those positions, I started to create things and mold before I knew that I was going to be doing something on my own. So I wasn't necessarily completely satisfied with the, the model that they had set out because I didn't think that it proper, properly served the public. Um, and to be specific in relation to what I'm doing, I started out in my professional career in Mississippi and across the counter, people would continuously ask me about diet tips, like what products do I recommend for weight loss? And um, like supplements and that kind of thing, yeah, supplements, shakes, whatever. Okay. And to be quite honest, I don't recommend supplements and weight loss, blah, blah, blah for weight loss and well, well-being like that stuff is a bandaid. It doesn't work. You need to address the lifestyle. Right. Yeah. And then you, you know, this, this, like, that's where, what it boils down to. Yeah, I learned and that the hard it was, way. Yeah. It was very prevalent. Like there's a huge rate of obesity and diabetes. Um, so with that, people would also bring all their diabetes stuff. Like they had no education on how to use it. And I think anyone that does not have exposure to this specific disease state, just to kind of highlight when you get a diabetes diagnosis, depending on how severe it is, it's an entire lifestyle change. Like yeah. not only are you having to take new medication, but you also now have these devices that you have to learn how to use to test your blood sugar. And you're like, okay, well, big deal, but it's not intuitive. Like it's a machine. They don't even know how to like put a strip into the machine. And that's not a knock on like the normal person, but why would you know that if you had never done it before? So all these people would show up with all their new gear. They would have no idea how to use it. And they, they would be coming to me because I'm like the most accessible person, ex accessible, not whatever that just came out as, um, because you know, you're there, right? You're, you're right there at the counter. And also a lot of the doctors would be like, just ask your pharmacist how to use it. Okay. So with the yeah. serpent part that I have, I had a, a very hard time turning people down because I saw a need and it was a great need They're They've got all this stuff that they're layering into their lives now, but in a retail setting, you are not given the staffing or the time to support 
supporting someone that has a, a diagnosis like that. It's just not realistic. So I would essentially build these classes and then open them up on my own time. And with the approval of my company, I would use that facility there, but I would open up classes to kind of do some educational training for these people that were asking these questions, like come in, I'll give you guys some background on like the nutritional aspect of what you guys should be looking at, what's appropriate, um, the physical activity that you should be incorporating into your routine. Um, but you know, that kind of stuff is not workable into your normal day. This is something that I would do after the day was over for after you, my you shift was my scheduled shift was over and it would be on my dime. It's not something the company paid me for. They allowed me to use their facility because it was a service that I provided for the patients that use that pharmacy. So, um, that's kind of the stuff that started molding this idea of what has developed into essentially that except now on my own. So not tied to a company. Um, I essentially consult uh, for diabetes, more so diabetes management. So when someone gets that new diabetes diagnosis, it's kind of trying to fill in the gaps that are clearly present uh, that when someone gets that diagnosis, they're not getting the support that they need. There is a traditional diabetes education route that people can go. For some reason, I would say probably 50% never get that. And I don't know the full reason. Some of it's because there aren't enough programs. Some of it's because, I don't know, the, the doctors don't necessarily see the importance or maybe they're trying to do some of that training internally. But um, regardless, there's just a huge need. And that's essentially the gap that I'm trying to fill after having had the experience with gestational diabetes, I was able to see firsthand what that education looks like. And there, it's just too linear. It doesn't allow for various learning types. It's a lot of information thrown at people who maybe don't have any training in it. So that's what developed into this whole consulting thing. Like I, created it and molded it in a way that would address those barriers to allow people to have not only the access, but also address the different learning styles. Like I've got coursework that they do before they ever meet with someone so that when they actually meet with someone, they already have the background. They can focus on what they want. They can ask the questions that they still have rather than like going home and like thinking about it at home and going, what just happened? Uh, yeah, like I did. Um, so do you still, so when you started to run those classes, yeah, you were working in a retail pharmacy, yep. right? So how did you, I'm just curious mechanically, how did you communicate with your patients, with the folks that are customers, regular customers at that pharmacy? So who have accounts, who have prescriptions filled there? How did you communicate to them? You just sent an email and said, Hey, come to this back room at five o'clock <laughs> next week. And we're going to talk. I mean, how does that, I, I have, and I should say too, when you talk about being accessible, I can count on one hand the number of times I've felt as though the pharmacist was accessible. Like it, it always seems as though the pharmacist, accessible. <laughs> I can see the white coat in the distance, yes. but I, yeah, I should say visually like, and open the pharmacy is open, but you're right. They're not necessarily accessible in the way that they 
the public expects them to be just because of the um, the layers of work that are placed on them in order for them to be safe and ensure they're not sending out errors they can't have that level of access that everyone is under the impression that they should be able to provide but um the way to answer your question um i i planned these courses like a couple months out so maybe it was like a month and a half out and i basically put up signs at the counseling counters like very very big signs and highlighted them so that it would draw people's attention and then they would read them and then they would sign up for the classes and, and we didn't have it in a back room we had it in the subway the, Even better. Okay. <laughs> i'm not sure if i was supposed to do that but i didn't ask you know ask for forgiveness not for permission oh, yeah yep. definitely my thought process with that um well you know like I, if I'm trying to help someone, I'm, I'm not about to ask a question that's going to make that not viable oh, yeah. anymore. You're walking so, into a, yeah. you're walking yeah. into an uphill. So, so classes in the subway with free 24 ounce fountain drinks as part of the incentive <laughs> no. to show up. No, I brought, strength, I high sugar brought coke. shopping carts over. Like that's part of what we did. We went through like the nutrition labels because a lot of people don't know how to read a nutrition label. Um, so I basically brought a shopping cart full of foods. So like things like good foods and bad foods. And we went through how to read. Um, and then a few of them, if they had the extra time, we basically went shopping up and down the, the aisles. And that is the same model that I have with what I'm doing now. But because of COVID, it's just not feasible right now. But when things start opening back up and we're more comfortable, like being with each other in person again, that's a that's part of the service that I'll provide. It's to Huge, actually... Yeah do like a group shopping trip, because I think it's, it's hard to teach some of those things through, you know, video or zoom or lecture or whatever, sometimes in person, it's just easier so that when they have a question, you can answer it instantly. So that's a really cool. So you ended up going shopping. Yeah. I mean, folks. I don't think they bought anything. I, they didn't buy anything, but we went up and down the aisles. Yeah. Well, right. But so that they can actually visualize what it means. Like the mm -hmm. common advice is shop the perimeter. And I think yeah. you've talked about that before, right? Fruits, yeah. vegetables, good meat, you, and don't spend so much time buying stuff in a box. Right. But that's it. It's it's not like, I mean, there's there's nuance to it. What did the rest of your team say? Like the you said, ask for forgiveness, not for permission, which I'm a big believer in that. I have been for a long time. That's probably obvious to people who know me. But what did the what did your team say? What did other people in the pharmacy? I mean, were were people? Well, she's. She's just taking on all this extra work, whatever. This is totally pointless. Nobody cares. Um, I no, I think because I, I actually had some of the my own staff get in on the classes. Okay. Yeah. I mean, so, even if you're not diabetic, it would be useful. Yeah, because I basically the two class it was two different classes. So one was more of like a healthy well-being and nutrition, maybe slash weight loss gear. And then the other one was diabetes specific. So I did have two different. Um, two different classes. So whether or not they had diabetes, they could fit into one of those. Um, yeah, I mean, they were very supportive. They thought it was pretty cool. I still talk with a lot of my staff from there. Um, you know, Facebook, we're still connected. Yeah. And, you know, they'll sometimes comment on a post or whatever. But I just talked with my one colleague that I worked with, um, another pharmacist a couple weeks ago. Um, she's like, how are you doing this? Like, what did you do to get there? And blah, blah, blah. Cause you know, pharmacy is 
a stressful environment right now. Um, and a lot of pharmacists are probably actively seeking other alternative work options outside of that traditional retail setting, just because of the stressors that, I mean, you just really burn out in that setting. It's, it's not only is it like high stress, but it's also some, and I have to be careful about how I say this, but like, there's like a moral obligation that you have to make sure that you feel comfortable in the environment that you're in doing what it is that you're doing and being able to provide the best work that you can. And I think that's probably as far as I can go with that. Okay. So, so let me ask, I don't know if you can answer this then what, well, what drives, I'm trying to figure out a way to ask it. And I don't think I can, I, I guess I'm trying to, I think, I think anybody listening can figure out what burnout means. And in fact, there's probably many people listening who've experienced that in whatever context they're in, but what for you, let's, let's, in your example, well, and I'll say for me, even in the military, I had tons of great opportunities and met a lot of great friends and I still, I, I burned myself out pretty hardcore, but what is it about that dynamic that burned you out? What does burnout look like in that environment and, and why, because this is probably not the time to hear that pharmacists who really are the front line now, because in fact, our, our primary care provider, Mag and Mai both said, or the doctor said, coming to us at the doctor's office is going to be your last resort. If you get, if you get the vaccine uh, or when you get the vaccine, it's going to be from a pharmacy more than likely just because of, I guess, distribution and how our state, I'm in Ohio at least, did it. So yeah, pharmacies are critical, particularly retail pharmacies, because that's all anybody knows. So what, what drives that? People just trying to find alternatives or trying to get out of it, move to something else or opening up businesses on their own. So um, there, there are a lot of layers to what has evolved. And I know that we've talked about some of it. Um, some of it's related to the fact that pharmacists do not have provider status. And what that means um, for people who aren't familiar with that terminology. So just to kind of give you some background, a pharmacist has an extensive amount of training in order to get their doctoral degree. So pharmacists are doctors and they are doctors of pharmacy, right? It's a four-year so program, right? It's a four-year program. Just like medical school. Four-year yeah. program, like medical school. It's the way that it's structured is a little different. In medical school, um, generally, it's like two years of didactic, which is your book work, and then two years of internship where they go out into the hospitals and actually um, do their hands-on learning. Pharmacy is three years of didactic, so three years of book work and then one year of that hands-on. And then you, as most people are familiar with, after medical school, they go on to residency, right? Well, that's also an option for pharmacy and it's, also, it's becoming kind of like the norm and the recommended. However, because there, <laughs> there has been an overabundance of new pharmacy schools and existing pharmacy schools expanding, the pool for pharmacists has become very large. Um, and those opportunities are no longer abundant. So 
the getting to a residency may not be a realistic option for everyone. And in order to do something outside of retail, generally speaking, it's very difficult if you don't have a residency. It's not impossible, it's just difficult. Um, it's a much harder path to uh, go down. So <laughs> what happens is these retail settings and they a lot of people get irritated when we refer to it as retail because they like to refer to it as community uh, okay but in, in in my opinion there are a lot of pharmacies that are community pharmacies in the true sense and then there are some that are retail what's the okay? what is a community pharmacy in the real sense there's a little bit more leeway to take to provide patient care the way that it should be provided and in a retail setting it is part of a corporation a lot of these bigger pharmacies basically they have shareholders that essentially yeah control the way that these things operate so and they're not necessarily trained in healthcare. they don't have a ton of experience in what that setting should really look like and should really entail. So what results is an environment that is sometimes a little bit stressful because it's understaffed and they layer on new taskings and initiatives. And because of this, oh, the provider status, which is what I was originally talking about, we don't have it as pharmacists. We're trying to get it so that we can provide this higher level of care, which essentially means pharmacists could work independently to see patients and fill that gap because there is a major gap. Like people will have to wait forever to get an appointment with a primary care right now. Yeah. Well, if pharmacists were allowed to do the basic functions that we're trained to do, we're like chronic disease management. That's where we're, we learn so much about chronic disease management. Like it's not difficult to diagnose someone with a blood pressure issue or a diabetes issue. There are tests and they are the same tests that everyone else uses. And oftentimes a doctor will diagnose it and then they will have a, an agreement set up with a pharmacist to actually manage these disease states. So pharmacists are embedded in a lot of these clinics, but pharmacists can't practice on their own to do this function because we don't have provider status. So versus I could just go to you from the start. Like if I, and you and I have talked about this when I got my blood work back and there were clear indicator, like there was a pre-diabetic indicator. I really didn't get much from my doctor besides kind of the boilerplate. And then he immediately said, I'll put you in touch with a dietitian who, to be honest, wasn't that helpful either. So instead of going through that whole rigmarole, and then I ended up talking to you and having the benefit of us being friends, I got more out of that conversation. And then all the random online research I had to do. Yeah, I could yeah. just go straight to a pharmacist. Yeah, that's and that's the idea. But until we get provider status, that won't happen. But because of that, that specific thing. Now a lot of these retail locations are starting to layer on these new clinical components to try to help maybe engage in a way that will encourage the establishment of provider status for a pharmacist, but they're layering it on top of what's already a chaotic environment. Um, so, you know, they're, they call it point of care testing. So 
and you may not even know that this is an option, but you can go to some pharmacies and you can, though they can take your blood pressure, they can give you a cholesterol test, they can test your blood sugar. If you have diabetes, they can do an A1C test. So you can see where your A1C is. Those services are offered from a pharmacy. I can walk in and do that? Yeah, and some some of them, if they have the capability, yes. I I mean, the last pharmacy I worked in, that was an option. People could go get a point of care test done. And these services are great. And that's really where we need to expand. And that is totally the role that a pharmacist could fill. But we can't do that on top of everything else that we're also doing in that retail setting because there are still medications that need to be filled. Someone needs to check them and make sure that it's safe. And putting all these additional things on top, it's just becoming, it's, it's too much. Um, and that's where the burnout happens. It's not because people don't want to serve the public anymore or you know, that their heart's not in it. It's just really hard to balance all of those things. And then we end up losing the people we probably should keep on board the most. Probably because a part of it's a, like I, like I said, it's like a moral obligation. You yeah. sometimes maybe don't feel like you're going to be able to provide your best work in that environment. Yeah, we'll go with that. Well, and you can't justify staying in that environment if you know you're not giving the patients the care that they need. Right. Is that what you mean? Okay. It, yeah, it's an ethical problem. I mean, that's the simplified version and probably the best that I can give you at this point in my life. Well, okay, that's fair. So we're, we're at time. Let me, let me ask you one more thing. And then I'm going to ask you uh, afterward, if we can do a part two, because I had other questions that I didn't get to. And I have <laughs> yeah, three times the number of questions now that I want to ask. Um, so what, what makes a leader in healthcare a leader? And from your standpoint, you can answer that, or you can answer what's missing in terms of leadership in healthcare. And we've talked a little bit about this. Questions. Those are so different. Um, You can take your pick. uh, Is that something we're going to be continuing in part two, or is that something you want me to answer right now? Do you want to start with that in part two? Yeah, I think we should, because I feel like that's going to be, yeah, I feel like that's going to be something to really talk about because there's, uh, you and I have already talked about some of that. And there, I mean, there's no doubt that there, the the healthcare system needs some attention. And a lot of that probably stems from the fact that leadership training is very lacking in that environment. Um, And that's just like a whole nother conversation. That's a longer conversation, you're right. I think so, yeah. Okay. Any, any last words then anything else that you want to get out there before at least to end part one, and then I will let you go. Cause I'm sure all three of your kids are probably awake by now. Right. I mean, and it's time to get something. moving. I don't know. I'm not in charge. My is <laughs> <laughs> so, Seth, um, thank God for you, man. Thank you for giving yeah, us the time yeah, for what I'll, it's worth. Yeah. I'll go make them coffee or something. It's fine. Um, no, I don't know. This has been fun. Like I, we always, we always have good conversation. I'm not surprised that we didn't get through like half of what we wanted to talk about. Yeah. Um, I know. Yeah. I am so excited about what you're doing. I think it's just awesome and such a needed service. I can't wait to see what you grow it into. Um, <laughs> Neither can I. And I encourage anyone that's listening to like really invest and consider diving into that journey with you just because I have personally worked with you and have known you for a very long time. 
and you're not just someone that's like trying to make a dime or you know like you are the right person to be doing this particular service you are it this you're the person to go to so i encourage people that are listening to kind of get on board and if they have a need for any sort of support in that realm of leadership they need to connect for sure well thanks i appreciate that yeah um yeah. you know you know that i like i'm a cheerleader on this one i just i'm so excited for what you're this for this endeavor for you thanks well, we're excited for you too uh real quick so if anybody are you accepting clients right now yeah yeah how what's the easiest way to get a hold of you and to find diabetes battle buddy um, well, we are all over the place. So we've got, I mean, it depends on what people use. So if you're on Instagram, we're there, we're on Facebook, they can also just go to www.diabetesbattlebuddy.com. And there are several different ways to get a hold of us. There's a newsletter, they can also um, like fill out a form to get contacted, they can shoot me a message on the Facebook page or Instagram, whatever is their preference, but we're all over the place. So okay pretty easy to get. If you search diabetes battle buddy, you will find one of our various social media platforms. Yeah. It's a pretty unique yeah. name. I'll, and I'll put stuff in the episode notes in the episode description, but definitely for, for somebody out there, even if this isn't you, I I'm a distance runner. I think I eat healthy and I was still pre-diabetic based on my blood work. I got a lot of genetics working against me. So if this isn't you, chances are, you know, somebody who could benefit from this type of help, um, yeah. go to the website, at least subscribe to the newsletter and get a hold of Allie when you can. And um, we'll schedule, we'll set up part two and we'll keep yeah. going. Cause and there's I'll a try whole to lot be on, I'll try to be on time for that one. Uh, it's 5 30 <laughs> in the morning, right? 10 minutes here. There's not going to be a big deal. I felt like I did pretty good. I was only like eight minutes late. So. Oh yeah. That's, that's not bad. We'll shoot for five minutes late next time. Yeah. Sounds good. Okay. Hey. Um, yeah. Thanks for being with me. We'll talk to you yeah. soon. Yeah. Sounds good. All right. All right. Uh, Allie has left the building. And um, so I, I hope you enjoyed that conversation. Uh, we spent a couple of minutes talking off the air before she had to go to start her day. It is uh, 7 a.m., just past 7 a.m. on the West Coast. So she's getting the kids up and ready in the morning. She's got Seth there, her husband with her, thankfully. And then she's off to work again to end the week. Um, we, so we were talking off air about how we didn't get to at least half, probably two thirds of the, the things I had both in my mind and on, on my notes, in my notes that I wanted to talk about, but, I, but I think that's good. So we're, we're definitely going to do a part two to that conversation. Lord knows we might end up doing a part three later on down the line. Um, but one of the things that we talked about, um, off air was, uh, leadership and healthcare and some of the other challenges that not, not just she faces, but for me as a patient, I, I'm a, I'm certainly a consumer of the healthcare system. I'm not a healthcare professional. And for a lot of reasons, I don't think I could be one, but certainly I've been frustrated uh, in the last few months, especially with, with how the system treats patients. Uh, so in my case, um, I got some blood work back. It told me I was pre-diabetic and I was told, Hey, you need to work out 30 minutes a day and um, eat better. And I said to, it was a nurse who had called me with the results and with that advice. And I said, okay, well, uh, at, at the time that was October of last year, and I was coming off of probably my best distance running season ever, uh, despite having no races and COVID certainly took a toll on that and on plenty of other things. But 
uh, working from home, I had plenty of time to train. And I said, well, I run 50 miles a week and I'm on a hybrid keto carnivore diet. I eat no sugar, very low sugar, very low carb. And I was met with, uh, well, let me ask a few more questions. So she's trying her best. And I understand, you know, she probably wasn't expecting that response, but the reality is each, each one of us is unique and the system, even pre COVID the healthcare system, uh, at least in my experience and perhaps in yours is not designed well enough to tailor the response to you, to care for you in such a way that is appropriate to you. Um, or at least to entertain your questions that are appropriate to you, right? So in my case, I've got genetics playing against me. I've got plenty of diabetes, heart disease, other things in my past, in my family's past. So regardless of how healthy I am, I know that I'm probably at a disadvantage relative to the average person. Okay, fine, I can handle that. But there are still things I can do. Certainly, Ali has helped me uh, see that. A couple of other friends and, and people that I know not even healthcare experts or healthcare providers, but simply people with experience or who understand fitness, nutrition, diet, all that kind of stuff have helped me tailor my family's eating and what we buy at the store. And, um, you know, we make, we make a great use of a butcher box subscription to get high quality food into the house. So all these types of things are, uh, lifestyle adjustments. Like Ali was saying, you've really got to look at the lifestyle half the pharmacy shelves in our pharmacies locally here are diet products, slim fast bars and shakes and, and protein powders and that kind of thing. Um, so in some way it kind of advertises, it messages, Hey, these things will help you get on track. And I, I thought that at one point, I know a lot of people that think that, and I spent plenty of money on supplements and that kind of stuff. And I still take some, some vitamins and stuff now, but um, I'm, I'm much more focused on, whole food, real food, as they say, versus uh, just chugging down chalky protein powders and protein bars and whatnot, because the macros appear great, which they might be okay on the surface. But then if you read the ingredient label, right, like Ali was talking about, you see all sorts of random stuff. So this is not a health podcast. Uh, if this is the first show you're catching, um, listen to an episode or two prior to this enabled word. And uh, I am here really to talk about leadership, all things leadership, and what it takes to build yourself into a stronger leader, a stronger person, someone who is resilient and dynamic and really can approach the world ready for anything. That's my calling. That's what I spend a lot of time talking about. Uh, if you caught the episode last week, last Thursday, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. That one got personal, but um, it was really, I was taking you along for part of the ride that I've been on for several months now. Um, identifying the through line in my professional career. So this week, talking to someone like Ali um, really helped, hopefully, to highlight why leadership matters in every environment, and particularly in healthcare. Right? It, it's it's there is so much technology, and our physicians and our pharmacists and our PAs and NPs and all of our different types of providers are so well educated and have access to a lot of different things. And then when they get into the provider role, when they get into the uh, clinical role at the hospital in a, in a private practice, wherever it is, th there are so many pressures 
outside of, as Ali put it, the moral obligation, the ethical obligation to your patients. There are so many pressures outside of it. It, it becomes for some people, I think, impossible to practice the kind of medicine, the kind of care, the kind of attention towards someone that you went into the field to do in the first place. Um, you know, if you're in the military now, perhaps you feel that way. I know I felt that way at one point. I, I entered the military for a particular reason, um, to pay back a debt really is what I did. And then I, I loved the idea of working with the team and of serving in a way that was bigger than me. And then I had a chance to lead other people and really develop other people. And it was incredibly rewarding. But then at times, just like any other business, like any other corporation, military is a big organization. And sometimes the processes don't align with the mission and the vision and you get frustrated and it happens. It's natural. It doesn't make the, it doesn't make the idea any less worthwhile, but the reality is what I think we're missing is you could really do a whole lot more if you focused not on process, but on the people. And if you spend your attention focusing on how to develop leaders earlier, you would eventually get to a point where you don't have to worry about process at all. So this is going to be the topic of another show coming up in, uh, I think, a couple of weeks. Um, but the idea that the more rules you put into the system, the more rules you create, the more regulations, the more checklists you create, the less training you're trying to do. And I don't, I don't know, you know, if this is you, if, if you're somebody who works in a compliance environment or an inspections environment or um, policy, right, you may not be thinking this consciously, but it's occurred to me over time, you know, and it, it's occurred to me over time that the answer to leading better and to really building a team that is dynamic and adaptive and can solve unpredictable problems, the key to that is not adding steps. It is not complicating the method. It is not making leadership sound like this super highfalutin thing that you don't actually master until you're 40 years old or beyond or, or until you're a senior executive. For one thing, you don't ever master it. It doesn't matter how long you've been leading. You're still going to learn something from your team. Excuse me. Uh, you're going to learn something every job. You're going to learn something from your team and you're going to make mistakes. So just assume that off the bat right now. But beyond that, if the more you complicate it with processes and procedures and checklists and rules, and you're prohibited for doing, from doing this in certain cases, you are allowed to do this, but only in these certain cases, the more you do that, I really think the more you're just trying to create a system that's self-sustaining without any intervention, without any training, without any mentorship, without any coaching. So on the surface, maybe that sounds great. You know, I'm, I'm going to build this. Um, I've got this HR policy in mind, and it's going to list out all the things people can and cannot do when they're, when they're on the phone with a customer. Here's what you're allowed to say. Here's what you're not. Here's what you're allowed to decide. Here's what you're not. And invariably, that works maybe for a, a percentage of the calls or a percentage of the interactions that your team has. And then a customer is going to ask something you couldn't predict. Right, a customer is going to ask for a refund on a product that looks used or busted up, and they've got a story that sounds plausible, maybe. And the customer service rep is trying to address it, and they're like, "Well, I have no idea what I can do. It's not in my checklist. It's not in my rule set. I got to go ask a supervisor." 
And maybe the supervisor can help because they've been given the authority, or maybe the supervisor has to ask, has to ask another person or another person or another person. Um, the running store that I go to most often uh, here in town, it, do I spend a little bit more money to go there versus a big box store to buy shoes or socks or whatever running gear? Yeah, I do. But they, each and every single person who's working there, every associate to include the owner who's behind the cash register, just like anybody else, uh, depending on when you go in, they, they will run you from the sale start to finish, trying on shoes, giving you advice, letting you know pros and cons about the shoe model, whatever it is. And if you come in a month later, you're like, I did a few miles in these. They're just not working out. I got pain here. I got this. I got that. It's not comfortable, blah, blah, blah. They say, okay. And they take the shoes back. And I've never once, not that I've had to do this often, I've had to do it a couple of times in 25 years, but, but for this shop and a couple of others in particular that I've, that I've gotten to, to go to over time, in the stores where the associate has said, okay, got it, we'll take them back. Do you want to exchange them? Do you want to look for another pair? Every single time when the associate just straight up says, they take ownership of that moment and they say, yep, we'll take them back. I'm sorry, they weren't working out. Do you want to exchange them or do you want to just go somewhere else? Do you want to come back? Each and every single time I've been like, well, no, I'll, I'll exchange them. I definitely want something that works. It's just not these. Every single time versus, okay, well, let me, let me get a manager. Let me see what we can do and I'll be right back. And I will tell you in those situations, which I've also experienced, not just with shoes, but whatever else, something that you were, that you were using that didn't work, whatever, you took it back to the store. Well, now we're going to burn a few extra minutes because you got asked for permission. And I know it's not your fault, but I'm less inclined now to spend more in the store. The less authority you have, that tells me you're not getting any mentorship or training to help you make the right decisions. So don't mistake me. Training isn't about telling you which decisions to make, because then all I'm doing is I'm taking the checklist and turning it into a verbal product. That's not the point. That's not, don't do that. That's not helpful. Training is about the core skills that your team members need to be successful and to make the team successful, right? So the, the associates in the running stores that I like the most they are particularly skilled. They, they not only know running shoes and the runner and runners in general, the kinds of things we struggle with, with gait and arch supports and plantar fasciitis and all the stuff you kind of hear about, you hear runners complain about that we like to complain about. They're not only experienced in that regard, but they, they know how to talk to someone to ask questions to elicit the answers that helps them diagnose. They're not medical providers. They're not physicians, right? It's not what I'm saying, but I don't need to go to a doctor to, to figure out whether I've, I've got shin splints or I, or I maybe have something else that might work better to help me alleviate some knee pain. I don't need to go to a doctor for that. When I know I'm 85%, 90% sure it's running related, it's wear and tear. I run a lot on hard surfaces. In your experience, what do I, what do I need? They asked me a couple of questions and boom, we've had a conversation. And in 10 minutes, I walk out the door with something that's going to help. And it, and it does, or it doesn't. And I come back and they say, Ooh, okay, that one didn't work. Let's try it again. Training and training is about core skills. Mentorship then is the 
very soft nudge that people get over time so that they can implement those skills better. Mentorship is not career planning. It's not only career planning and it's not, and it is certainly not simply teaching you how to solicit business and message somebody on social media because I've heard that a lot lately and, and Ali even mentioned it at one point, right? To, to just cold call, cold solicit somebody on social media, that's not building a relationship. And, and I know mentors, quote unquote, who kind of focus on just that type of thing, how to sell yourself. Mentorship is guidance, it's coaching. A lot of these words are synonymous and, and the reality is, of course they are because it's ultimately me making you into a better version of you. And it's not because I can make you into that. It's because my questions and my approach elicit that out of you. You alone have the power to become a better version of yourself. I can't make that happen for you any more so than I can make it happen for my kids. I'm a coach to my kids as much as I'm a coach to any team member that I have led or will ever lead in the future. All right. So I kind of went off on a rant. Um, this is clearly what I'm passionate about. I like talking about this stuff. Um, hopefully the conversation was useful, was of value to you. Ali and I are going to connect again for part two here in the near future, and we'll continue the conversation. In the meantime, um, my number one goal, the Enabled Word Project and the Enabled Lead Coaching Program's number one goal is to help you build yourself into the dynamic, adaptive person that you know you can be, that you know you need to be and that you will be. So we have a program in place that helps support that. We have a framework. We have a, a list of questions that we'll go through over an eight-week or 12-week experience. But ultimately, what Enabled Leader does is it gives you a system. It gives you a framework to think about your approach to your profession. You know, More often than not, I'm, I'm talking with people who, are, who really need this help for the workplace. It might be for the community. It might be for something at home. But oftentimes, if we can really focus on your workplace environment, what you need to be, to be more successful as a, a mentor, a leader, a coach in your workplace environment, everything else falls into place because there's a lot of stress that comes off your shoulders. But what the framework does for you, it does not add anything to the pile. It removes from the pile it removes from the pile. So think back to something Ali said toward the end of the conversation about burnout. And I know she, she was being very careful with what she was saying and, and there's reasons for that, but think about all the things that we pile on every day, not just in the pharmacy example, our pharmacists, I, I didn't have an appreciation for what pharmacists did. I'll be the first to admit, I really didn't understand it because pharmacists in my experience aren't that accessible. But it's not because they don't care. It's certainly not because they don't want to serve. It's because they simply cannot separate themselves from what they're doing because of all the responsibilities they have. And particularly in a pharmacy where it's just them and the rest of the, the techs are there supporting them, there's certain things that only that pharmacist can do. Now, certainly in the COVID environment, I think everybody is seeing how valuable and how vital to the entire system pharmacists are because without quote unquote, retail or community pharmacies, we would be having a way worse time getting the COVID vaccine out to the population. Think about what, ex what access would look like if we didn't have pharmacies um, at the corner. 
right? If I didn't have a Walgreens sitting in front of a, the grocery store a half mile away, and then a CVS another mile down from that, and then a Rite Aid, and then pharmacies inside of Walmart and Target and all these other retail stores and all these other places. If we didn't have pharmacies, what would access look like? We'd all be in line at a, at a hospital pharmacy or at a hospital-based clinic, and it'd be a mess. So think about all the stuff we pile on, right? What matters most is care for the patient, response to the customer. What matters most is making sure my F-15 driver, my Eagle driver is as combat ready in this mission set as possible. I want her to know exactly how to employ these bombs in these scenarios. If you're a military type, that example might resonate. If you're in retail, you know, we are presenting products to consumers we think they need or want. My number one priority is how do I respond to a customer? Not so that they buy today, so that they buy today, tomorrow, next week, week after, and so that they bring in their mom, their dad, their brother, their sister. And they're like, hey, this place is cool. They got stuff. They got a lot of cool products. I'm game to come here and become a loyal customer. No process, no checklist, none of that crap helps you interact better with the customer, but your ability to communicate and connect with that customer. And then you as a manager, as a supervisor, mentoring those associates on the floor, helping them see where they can make the interaction better, where they can honestly, genuinely connect with someone. Don't not, not scripts and sales tactics that are sleazy and cheesy. And the stuff that you think about when we think about sales as a four letter word, I mean, Hey, when a mom and three kids comes in and the, the three kids are, they're all kind of running around, the mom sees, seems stressed. Don't sit there and think that they're going to spend 10 minutes listening to you explain the benefits of this product, whatever it is. Maybe what she needs is, Hey, what are you in to look for? Let me help you grab it. Okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm just here for some soap. I, I'm, I need a couple of bottles of soap and this shampoo. This is our favorite. And I just, I had five minutes and I needed to stop in. I will go get you your soap. Right. Maybe you didn't get a chance to explain another product or the new thing or the whatever, but that's not what she needed. And I would I would venture to guess I would tell you she's more likely to come back later because the memory she has isn't that you just tried to hawk stuff on her. It's that, hey, I got in and got out in like three minutes and I got exactly what I needed. That was fantastic. They're cool. That's connecting with a customer. That's connection. That is a skill that takes time to build and it requires mentorship and coaching and support. So for you as a manager, supervisor, are you that mentor, coach, leader? Do you have a framework available to you that lets you dispense with all the crap and focus on the very, very short list of things that matters? If you're in that boat where you know you need to shed the crap, get rid of the BS and focus on what matters and really hone in on what you need to do to lead your team. Find me at coaching.enabledword, excuse me, coaching.enabledlead.com for more information on our coaching programs. Enabledword.com is our parent site. There's a blog on there. We've got a newsletter. It comes out once or twice a week. Absolutely subscribe if you want to hear about new programs we've got coming up. Two programs out right now, a one-on-one -on -one and a group program called Leaders of Influence. Um, I'll talk more about that one perhaps next week. Leadership is not complicated. We make it sound complicated. 
because it it's it's so different in every environment but leadership at its core is the same no matter where you go doesn't matter what you do doesn't matter how many people you're working with it's really a very simple thing invest in others and be loyal to their outcome invest in others and be loyal to their outcome that's what leaders do it can be very difficult but it is also one of the most rewarding things you could ever do as a professional i don't care where you go it is absolutely worthwhile coaching.enabledlead.com um join us mondays 6 a.m on the east coast the monday meditation will come out and then uh, next week we'll have another great one for you on thursday afternoon Hope you guys have a great rest of the week. Enjoy your weekend. Take care. We'll talk to you soon. This is the last question.